Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more, all at 15% off with code PODCAST15 at checkout. That's right. Get 15% off of all of our products at lisacongdon.com with code podcast15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I'm so excited to introduce you today to Charlotte Burgess Auburn. Charlotte is a designer, an artist, and an educator, and she has been the director of community at the Stanford D School since 2005, where she also teaches classes on the role of self-awareness and creativity and design. In this episode, Charlotte and I talk about this notion of having convictions. And we talk specifically about the power of expressing your convictions through a personal manifesto. If you don't know what a manifesto is or what a manifesto can mean for you, hold on to your hats because you're in for a treat. Charlotte has just published a book called You Need a Manifesto. And the guiding principles in the book are a powerful revelation in a society that does not generally teach us to use things like convictions, values, and principles to guide our life choices. And Charlotte shows us how to craft a personal manifesto that will help us face daily decisions and create more purpose in our lives and work. If you are looking for guidance on how to live and work with more purpose and conviction, this episode is for you. Let's welcome Charlotte to the show. Charlotte, I am so thrilled to have you on the show today. You recently wrote a book called You Need a Manifesto. And I wanted to say that this book is literally one of the best books of its kind, if not the best, that I have ever read. And I have read it twice now. First, some months ago when I was asked to write the blurb that went on the back cover, and then again in preparation for this conversation. And part of the reason I love it so much is that it really outlines for me the incredible power of understanding the intersection of self-knowledge, one's purpose, what we believe in, and what motivates us, and finding a way to sort of codify those things as a light to guide our paths. And it's been years since I attempted to write a manifesto, and I'm devoted to the idea of doing it again to start the new year, and I'm going to use your book to help me. I have done a lot of inner work on my values and convictions, and as a creative, it has been transformative in my career and in the work that I choose to make, and also sort of like why people pay me to make work for them. It's not just that they like my art, but it's like they like what I stand for. And also my kind of like attempt to be vulnerable and talk about the stuff that I don't actually know very much about. So I, I'm really excited to dive into this topic today with you because this book is not just beautifully written. There was like paragraphs I wanted to read over and over, but it's also really relatable and easy to absorb and filled with incredibly wise advice. So thank you for all of that. We're going to focus our conversation on this idea of conviction. And through that lens, we're going to talk about expressing your convictions through a personal manifesto and how that exercise can be helpful. But before we do that, I like to ask every guest 
to tell us the path you took in life that led you to what you do now. So you're a designer and artist and educator, and you're so much more than that. But there's a sort of like three ways that we can describe you. And you've worked and taught at the Stanford D School for almost 20 years with a focus on self-awareness. So go back as far as you'd like and tell us the story of how you ended up where you are now. Yeah, you know, I think if I had known when I was growing up that there was such a thing as being a designer without having to choose what kind of design you were going to do, I would have been all over that. I grew up in a household full of people who were educators and creative folks and was always really encouraged to be a creative kid. I did a lot of drawing and painting and photography and you know, messing about with clay <laughs> as a young person. And I think that was something that was just heavily encouraged in my household. And, you know, it was the 70s, so we were also encouraged to go do what makes us happy. And so that is a, you know, that is a route I've always pursued. And in high school, I pursued it through theater. I did a huge amount of design for theater, whether it was costumes, lighting, setting, just all the backstage stuff. I was one of the theater kids. And when I went to college, I continued to pursue that. But halfway through my college career, I decided that in order to get into art classes, I would change my major because it was very difficult to get into any art classes as a non-art major. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go into theater, I can take art. That's, you know, I can be an art major and go into theater. Nobody checks your credentials <laughs> at the door. So, And then as soon as I swapped over, I realized, like, that is where I needed to be, really, mostly. But I have always had a kind of dual nature of wanting to make things and make things happen and understand things. So there's always been a kind of like deep learning component or research component to my life, a, a need to make things with my hands and a need to like create experiences or make things happen. And so I kind of pursued those in serial to a certain extent. I got a master's degree in art history, which was like kind of another deep dive into the, into the research and learning piece. And then I started working at the MIT Media Laboratory and started just like, I was essentially a producer. I was making things happen. I was making some crazy things happen, which was really fun. And then when I came out to California and started working at the D School, it kind of all came together. I finally figured out that you could be a designer and not have to choose to be one particular kind of designer. That design was a tool that you could use to learn, that you could use to make, and that you could use to make things happen. And when that happened, I was like, I'm home. Excellent. <laughs> I love that. Can you say a little bit more about the D School and like how long it's been around and, yeah. and kind of like what happens there? There've been actually a number of books, including yours, that have come out of that space around a variety of really important topics. And so I'm just, you know, for people who've never heard of it or want to know more, what is the D School at Stanford? Yeah, so the D School started, we started sort of operations in 2005, although classes and ideas were being prototyped well before then. And the tradition that the D School represents around design is a long-standing one that's been at Stanford since the early 60s, basically. But we teach design methodology and design tools to students from all over the university. So we bring together students from across the university to work on interesting, gnarly, some difficult, some not so difficult problems that have real world application that usually require people from more than one field to address. And as of September, September 2022, we have adopted the two degree granting programs in design at Stanford as well. So now we're kind of like a full service institute teaching elective courses to students from all over the university in design and teaching design methodology to students who are interested in getting a degree. That's so cool. What a fabulous place to situate yourself. It's really cool. I mean, I love teaching classes where you know, in my class are law students and medical students and graduate school of business students and ed students and undergrads and fellows. And, you know, it really brings together a, 
a really wide variety of folks from across the landscape at Stanford, which is a really big institution. <laughs> and in, at moments, it feels like it's so big, you can't ever, you know, like we just don't know what the, the right arm doesn't know what the left toe is doing. I mean, it's just completely like <laughs> the blind man and the elephant. You know? Yeah, I feel like half the podcasts I listen to are like, by some researcher or scientist or another who's at Stanford doing really amazing work. So, I mean, they're amazing. It's amazing work that people do from across the university. So I feel very privileged to be in a place where we are sort of like a school crossing, right? Where kind of people can come from all over. Yeah, we get to meet some really interesting folks. We're going to talk about manifesto shortly, but I wanted to talk first about this idea of having convictions, especially in the context of one's creative work. And I define, and I'm sure you would define creative work, probably much like you define design broadly, right? As any work that involves innovation. So why is having and even living by convictions important? Maybe even, especially right now in this world that we're living in. So talk a little bit about that sort of as the underpinning first. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes back a little bit to like the whole reason why I started this project, which is, I mean, there are a variety of, of streams of reasoning of like why it came to be, but the, the local impetus was my students at Stanford. And at the time we were teaching a lot of graduate students. We weren't teaching as many undergrads yet. And we had a lot of graduate students from all over the university. And graduate school is a really interesting place for a lot of people. It can be very destabilizing because you've made a very intentional choice to change your life in some way, right? You've decided you want to go back and put yourself in a position of learning to acquire something that then is going to hopefully allow you to do something different with your life. But many of my students had a pretty vague idea of what they thought that different thing was going to be. And having come into graduate school, they were kind of in the middle of the experience, which often is somewhat of a trial by fire. You know, you don't have a lot of time. It's like a year or two years, usually at the most, unless you're getting a PhD. And they were nervous. They were anxious. They were worried about what, where were they going? What exactly was going on? Were they learning the right things? Were they pursuing the right stuff? They had this specific amount of time here at Stanford. Was it going to do the thing they wanted it to do? And I thought, there's so much anxiety out there and people felt so intimidated by the idea of like needing to know what they were, what the future held for them and what, what their goals were. And I thought like, can we just lower the bar of intimidation on understanding what you believe and crafting some conviction? around what it is you want to be doing. Like, let's not hold it up on a pedestal and instead work with what we have sort of today and move from there. And I found that in responding to those anxieties of my students, I was actually really starting to work on difficulties and anxieties and goals that everybody has, right? Especially in this moment where, like, the world is coming at you. You know, just the amount of information that we are all sort of attempting to absorb through our phones, <laughs> mostly through our phones. It's just intense. And I think, you know, it, it feels like we're in a moment in our world where things are not terribly stable. You know, we're really recognizing the level to which our environment is destabilizing because of us, right? <laughs> right? We're sort of surrounded by that feeling. And my goal for the Manifesto Project is really to help people to lower the intimidation factor around creating convictions that can help you navigate in the world. So whether it's your work or the rest of your life, it feels like that's something people ought to be able to do and it, it shouldn't be something that is high stakes. So was the problem statement for you more that people didn't have convictions or that they didn't know how to adequately express them or that the bar was so high for how to express them or whether or not to express them that indeed needed to be lowered? Or was it sort of a combination of all of those things? I guess I would say it was a combination. I think what happens is that, you know, in the same way that everyone is a designer, everyone has convictions, everyone has beliefs. It's just that you aren't necessarily looking at them intentionally. You're acting on them often, but you aren't necessarily 
acting on them intent intentionally. And so the project that I put together really is just a, it's just a methodology that allows you to externalize the things that you believe so that you can work with them out in front of you and sort of replicate in plain view the kind of process that goes on inside your head and your heart in a way that then allows you to kind of make changes or shift things, push yourself in an intentional way. And I, I think that to me is a, it's a key component of conviction, right? Is a sense of intentionality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So jumping from conviction to manifesto, let's start by clarifying for people who are unsure of their own definition. <laughs> Let's start by clarifying what a manifesto is. So how do you define a manifesto? Sure. So traditionally, a manifesto in general is a, a statement of purpose and or a script for action, right? But traditionally, a manifesto has been a also a tool for recruitment. So it's I, I, I write down the thing that I believe, I put it on a piece of paper and I nail it to the front door of the church if I'm Martin Luther or if you like, you know, I, uh, I put it out there in my little red book. And I'm, I'm trying to not only talk about what it is that I believe for myself, I'm trying to broadcast that publicly to others and potentially recruit other people to my cause. But I feel like right now is not the time to be recruiting other people. We are being recruited by everyone everywhere at every moment of the day. Like right now, what we really need to be doing is recruiting ourselves to our own cause and kind of bringing ourselves out so that we can see what we believe. And so for me, a personal manifesto is just that for yourself. It's a statement of purpose, an understanding, a statement of your beliefs and a script for action, right? The kinds of behaviors that you want to have, right? It's a, a way to create a sort of a shortcut for long thoughts, right? So if you have a strong conviction about something, creating a kind of summary statement about that will help create a touchstone for you that you can navigate with using, right? So it becomes a tool for navigation. I love that. A little later, I want to talk about an example that you cite in your book from your own manifesto that is not necessarily something that you would or that I would, you know, like define as sort of a traditional manifesto belief statement, but that is part of your manifesto that I found really beautiful and that actually brings you a lot of comfort. So we'll get to that in a little bit, but let's talk for a minute about what a manifesto can give to us or do for us on a daily basis. I mean, you, you touched on that in the previous question, but I want people to understand, and we're going to dive into sort of like the methodology that you put out there for developing your own manifesto. But, you know, let's say I go through the time and effort and work to write my own manifesto, and I don't just sit down and write it from my head. In fact, you really advocate for spending some time on it and culling lots of different spaces to write, you know, a good manifesto. But once I've got that, in a few words, describe what a manifesto can give to us on a daily basis if we write it thoroughly and then use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a pretty wide variety of things that it can do from the very basic stuff around just like being able to work your work, right? So like if you find yourself in a part of your creative process where you're a little bit stuck or lost or, you know, you're like, I'm not sure what to do now. Like a manifesto can be like, and now is the time to move on to the next part of this process. <laughs> right? It's just, it can be as easy as those kinds of instructions. And some of my favorite ones from there, I, I found from Charles and Ray Eames, which are just lovely, like process-based things. But it can also be, I would say, a more directive or navigational tool in a more profound sense. So I think it can do things for you that are about helping you to remember the kind of behavior you want to have in moments of duress or in places where you feel challenged or, you know, in ways when you feel like you need to stand up for what you believe in, having what you believe in outside of yourself and available for you to access means that you can stand your ground in times when, you know, other folks are trying to get you to go a different way. 
So I think there's a pretty, yeah, there's a pretty wide gamut of places you can end up. I mean, I think one of the strongest uses for a manifesto, at least at the D school, is to synthesize your learning. Right? We are generally tossing a lot of new ideas at our students in a short period of time. And, and we know both from experience and from research that learning, you know, most of the time learning doesn't happen in the time when teaching happens. <laughs> learning happens when you process what has happened to you during that teaching, which is why we lean so heavily on experiential teaching. And when you have time to process that experience, you that is when the learning gets cemented. And so creating a manifesto that includes, where the raw material includes a lot of the stuff that you've just been learning, can really help people to get it, you know, to kind of cement the work that they've done so that when they you know, head out into the world or go home from one of our programs, they have something to hang on to to help them make the shifts in their behavior that they want to make. Mm. So part of the way you approach writing manifestos is not simply about stating your beliefs with authority, right? But coming at your manifesto with the goal of self-knowledge, you refer to it as a self-teaching feedback loop. Say more about that, because I think that a lot of times people imagine a manifesto as being something that, you know, just simply writing down the things that you believe in and, you know, nailing them to the door. And your approach is really quite different. And that's part of why it's so appealing to me. And it includes like uncovering your biases, which we'll get into in a minute. But talk a little bit about more, you know, this idea of it being a self-teaching feedback loop. Yeah, so Rick Griffith, who is the amazing, incredible designer and manifesto maker who made the manifestos that are in the book, he says, you know, a manifesto is a tool for right now, right? It is of the moment, right? It's a statement of your beliefs right now. But that doesn't mean that your beliefs won't change, right? It doesn't mean that you won't change and grow and learn new things and need to incorporate them into your convictions. And so I feel like the opportunity for a personal manifesto is to be able to create this, I don't want to say authoritative, but like intentional statement of what you believe and test it out in the world, right? Like when you use that out in the world and then you experience what happens after you use it, right? And then you process that experience, you can bring it back to your manifesto and be like, do I still believe that? Does something that I've experienced, something that I've heard, someone that I've talked to, a piece of art that I've encountered, does it challenge my beliefs? And what do I want to do with that challenge, right? Like, so assuming that your manifesto is going to remain static for the rest of your life is, is, is kind of a sad place to be at, right? Like you should change, right? And so I feel like a manifesto, a personal manifesto anyway, is like a wonderful thing to be able to edit, to be able to change, to be able to work with, right? Right. It's almost like, I, I mean, I feel like part of that is sort of mindset and attitude, right? Like that and actually, that goes back to what you were saying earlier, like, let's take the pressure off this to be this sort of perfect summation of who I am and what I stand for, but rather, you know, what I believe now, and that, you know, I might change my mind. In fact, I probably should. I wrote a values deck that came out last year. And, you know, while many of our personal values can remain unchanged for our entire lives, oftentimes they do change and you actually want them to, right? Because we're always sort of morphing and changing, changing our mind, changing what's a priority, letting go of things that don't serve us. And I think about that in the same way that people should actually be, you know, have a sort of critical eye. I mean, you know, you have to sort of accept your values as part of who you are and not fight them if they truly are your values. But at the same time, I think it's important to always have some sort of reflective, stance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the book, especially the piece that's most important to me is this, this idea that self-awareness is a tool for you, but also for everyone else, right? So if you have self-awareness, right, then you will be a better designer because you will be able to tell the difference between the things that matter to you and the things that matter to other people, or the things that matter to the world, the things that matter to the environment, right? 
Right. We can't assume that everyone is going to, that everyone thinks about things in the same way. Yeah. So you have folks assess four things as they go into writing their manifesto goals, values, ethics, and biases. So let's talk about each of these things and why examining each of them is important. So let's start with goals. So what is a goal? And, you know, I feel like that's the one where people get a really stumped sometimes because they want to make the perfect goal. Yeah. So let's talk about (laughs) goals for a second. (laughs) Yeah. You know, a goal is a destination, right? It's a state you want to arrive at. Right. So people often think about them as a destination and, you know, there's a journey to get to your goal. And I think that's a really good metaphor. But I I tend to think of it as like a sea voyage that is using a a slightly less sophisticated sense of, of navigation than we currently have in our radar type boats. It's kind of like navigating by the stars. Right. You know, you can do a certain level of navigation. There's like a, a If you set off in the direction of your goal and you have a good sense of where you want to go and how you want to get there. So this is where I think goals and values or tactics kind of come together. What you're actually getting is a sort of cone of possibility. So if this is your, you know, this is your starting point and your goal is over here and you start your journey, you know, right your cone of possible landing places can be pretty wide. And then as you travel sort of closer towards your goal, those cones of possibility become a little bit narrower and a little bit narrower. You may not end up in exactly the same place that you originally intended to go, but if you navigate according to your values and beliefs, you'll end up someplace you really want to be, right? So to me, that's that's the idea of like creating or understanding a goal that you have and allowing it to be not as tiny, not a pinpoint, right? I explained this to my oldest child who has a very strong goal to go to Mars. She wants to be an astronaut and go to Mars. And at this point has an understanding of the limited number of people who become astronauts. <laughs> so, but I did say, like, when you have a goal that's as clear as that, right, it also can help to bring you into proximity to a really wide variety of other things that might make you just as excited that you don't know about yet, right? So pursuing the goal to be an astronaut is a great goal to have as long as you're also open to the cone of possibility. The cone of possibility. I'm going to write that down. That is, I'm really like a visual thinker. And that came, that came from my colleagues, Kelly Schmoody and Andrea Small, who wrote the book from the D School, which is called Navigating Ambiguity, which I 1000% recommend. I did read that one. They, uh, D School sent me a bunch of books and that was one that I did read. Maybe I need to go back to it. It's amazing. So that comes from them. They, Kelly has worked a lot with folks who are part of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. So like this kind of reckoning, this sort of sense of cone of possibility in a navigational sense comes from that tradition of sea voyaging. Well, it also points to the fact that goals cannot exist in isolation because you are also always navigating your values, your ethics, your biases, all these things. And that each of these things sort of like is in conversation with the other things. Because I think sometimes we go about goal setting and we don't really think about so many other circumstances that are important. So let's move on to values. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. Talk about the the sort of purpose of values and evaluating your values as you go into writing a manifesto. Yeah. So I feel like if goals are the destinations, right, values are the gas, they're the energy that gets you there. You know, the, the things that you believe in are the things that motivate you, right? Your values really motivate you to act in a certain way or to do certain things or even to pursue certain goals. And so understanding what your values are, what you value in life feels like really critical to, <laughs> to getting to where you want to go. And I, I do feel like, you know, people are acting on their values all the time they just, they haven't necessarily articulated them intentionally. I think the only reason to really get them out in front of you and to look at them is to be able to be intentional about how you want to act on them. They help you to inform your goal, right? They help you choose your goals. 
Exactly. And I think that conversely, because we're not intentional about them, we often live and work in ways that are in conflict with our values. Mm -hmm. And often these feelings of angst or red flags that we experience in situations or with different people are because these situations or people are in conflict with our values and because we're not aware of what our, we're not being conscious or intentional about our values, we continue to, you know, put ourselves in these situations that are actually like extremely stressful because they're in opposition to our values. And so for me, getting to know my values has really helped me understand why certain situations are stressful for me. I just realized, for example, that spaciousness like having spaciousness in my life. And I think this is a relatively new one is just like probably one of my top five values, this idea of having space around things and not, you know, for years I've been working in what feels like a sardine can, right. Which has been its own kind of wonderful having a career that's really been, you know, explosive and full and lush and all those things. And so now everything is through the lens of like, if I take this thing on, does it take away from this sense of spaciousness that I finally feel like I have in my life? Or, you know, so I'm being really intentional about my choices based on this value that I have for this phase of my life. And so I feel like it's, you know, values can be such an important tool in sort of understanding why things are working for us or potentially could work for us and why things maybe aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I think even just listening to you talk through that, I'm hearing, right, there's like a, you have created a little articulated tool for yourself that helps you to make decisions when things come at you, right? So when you're like, wow, this is a really cool opportunity. And a part of your brain is like, take it, take it. You have a checklist, right? You have another little checklist that's like, space, question mark, (laughs) spaciousness, question mark, right? And like, maybe that's in your manifesto. Yeah, I think it's going to end up in the manifesto. (laughs) And I think that's what I mean by a manifesto is really just like the ways in which we are articulating our goals and our values in ways that help us to make decisions and help us to navigate. What's the difference between, okay, so ethics is another one. I think I understand the difference But what is the difference between ethics and values? So, I mean, ethics are ethics are rules. Ethics are the rules of the road. Right. They are, you know, in the metaphor of navigating. Right. Ethics are the lines on the road. They're the steering wheel. You know, they're the thing that like helps the brakes. The things that help you to that you've codified for yourself that help you to not cross lines that are important to you. And you know, I think it's important to have a personal ethic, but ethics are also often shared, right? So they are a way for groups of people to agree on what is okay and what is not okay. And so being aware of like, what are the ethics that you are currently subscribed to, (laughs) right? Whether that comes from your culture or it comes from your experience or it comes from your career, right? You know, if you are an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, you've taken an oath in a variety of different ways about the ways in which you will use your working knowledge. And I think... So to me, the the difference is really values are much bigger and broader and kind of softer and squishier around the edges. And and ethics are really like, these are my rules. Okay, last but not least, biases. And this is the one that sort of surprised me, but I also sort of, once I kind of, you know, was really digging into your book, I began to understand why it was important. But I want the listeners to understand too, why, why is exploring your biases important when you're trying to figure out what your convictions are, or what your manifesto should be? Mm. So I think a lot of our, our values and our ethics are handed to us by our experiences as we grow. So they may come to us from our families or our cultures, but they are often things that we have adopted without scrutiny necessarily. And, you know, a bias is essentially just a pattern, right? A learned pattern of 
belief or a learned pattern of behavior. And everyone has them. And actually, everyone has to have them because if we didn't have them, the cognitive load of living would be incredibly overwhelming, which is why it's so difficult to be a baby, you know, (laughs) right? Biases are sort of encoded patterns. But that means that some of them are serving us well, and some of them are not. And give an example of a, of a bias, just so people can kind of wrap their heads around what we mean in this context. Yeah, a bias might be, you know, something as simple as like, the one I give in the book is like, barbecue chips are the best chips. <laughs> right? Like, or like, you know, my basketball team is the basketball team, right? Like, I have a strong bias towards fans from that team, right? A strong liking from fans from that team. And one that doesn't serve us is like, women are weak, right? And that's a bias that was handed to me by my culture. So that points to the fact that probably a lot of times biases are unconscious. Absolutely. Maybe not that barbecue chips are the best, but maybe, you know, women are weak. Like you would never, one might not ever admit to somebody that that was their bias, but in fact... It is. And yet, like when they're going to look for somebody to help them, you know, move things or <laughs> to do something really difficult, they, they might make a choice more readily to find someone who's male. And I think the unconsciousness of it is critical because what happens is that you need it to be unconscious in order for biases to work well. They have to be unconscious because they have to be low cognitive load. It's a way for our brain to reduce cognitive load. And I read this book a couple of years ago, which was Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And I have an excerpt of it in my own book, which is about these two systems of thinking, which he tragically calls system one and system two, which I find really hard to remember. But (laughs) I was like, Kahneman, give me something else. But system one is essentially a extremely fast, intuitive system of thinking. And it is grabbing onto all of these impressions and ideas and reacting to them in ways that feel, essentially it's thinking that feels like emotion. It feels like feeling rather than thinking. And then system two is the thinking that we think of as thinking, which is like highly systematic decision-making about things. And essentially... What Kahneman is saying is our system one, they're operating at the same time, but our system one is pulling in enormous amounts of information and data and serving up impressions to our system two. And basically saying like, I feel this, I feel this, I think this, I think this. And system two is deciding what to do about that. They're deciding how to act on that. And biases are functioning kind of at that system one level. They've become... They're thoughts that have become feelings, right? They're very quick. And this is both wonderful and terrifying, right? That we can have these things that are so deeply seated, so unconscious, that they're just being thrown up at us as feelings. But it also means that we can change them, right? It means that we can use our system too to receive that impression and and have a different identification for it. Decide that like... You know, when we see somebody, right, like I think this makes me like more than anything excited about my own kind of deep-seated racist biases that have been brought down to me via my culture and my family, right? That like I now have the opportunity to change those by taking in that impression and inserting a different kind of thought when it's being served up to me, right? So that I can change the way that I act, when it comes to, you know, when I feel mad, right? Like, what's my reaction to that? When I'm being served up this sense of, like, I want to do something that feels angry, right? Instead, I can take 10 breaths, right? And I think, for me, that the reason why it's important to do some of this work before you really get into making a manifesto is that a lot of the work of deciding, of identifying what it is that you value and you believe is that system one work. It feels intuitive, right? I want people to get in there and look at these pieces of raw material from other writers and have intuitive feelings about them. I want them to resonate with them, but that's very much a system one process, which means your biases are in play. 
when that's happening. And so I feel like it's not a good idea to like get in there without having thought about having identified some of the ways in which you are biased. How I can imagine for a lot of people just listening to this and trust me, when you read through all of this in Charlotte's book, there's so much more context than what we're able to provide in a very short Yeah, but but I think a lot of people are like, oh, man, that's a lot to kind of like sift through. How do we avoid overthinking all of these things, right? Because we do actually want to lower the bar for developing, you know, some set of convictions. So how do we avoid, you know, overwhelm? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I feel about it is that these four pieces, the sort of goals and the values and the ethics and the bias are all a part of this sort of process of working with your manifesto, but they don't all come before you make your manifesto, right? It's all happening together, right? So they're kind of like- You don't have to figure all of them out. You don't have to figure it all out before you do the manifesto. You you do the manifesto first and that helps you figure all these things out, right? Like the manifesto, at least certainly the project that I have included in the book is really about starting, right? It's about taking that first step so that you can wade into these things and be like, where am I? What does this feel like? How is it? Does it work for me? Does it not work for me? Yeah, I mean, my goal is to make it as easy as possible to do this kind of stuff, because I think we all write the book we need to read, I think, as they they say. And this is certainly the one for me, right? It was like, I needed a way to wade in when I felt intimidated and scared about knowing what it was that I believed in and following it. And so, yeah, I think just starting by doing is the way to do it. Your approach to writing a manifesto is really about, you know, sort of first and expansive exploration, research, finding inspiration, going inward, and then documenting what resonates. And then taking all of that and curating something that's worded in a way that feels good to you. I love the part of the book where you talk about like, you know, there's so many different kinds of manifestos worded in so many different ways and codified in different ways. So talk about the importance of of that process of going kind of big before you curate. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I put it in the book is like, you need to be a wide funnel with a small hole, right? It's like, it's, you're taking in a lot and letting out a little. There we go with the cone of possibility again, right? It's a similar thing. Be choosy. <laughs> the cone of possibility is wide, right? Yeah, I mean, the manifesto project included in the book is one where, you know, I ask people to go out and identify five to 10 manifestos written by other people that seem interesting to you, seem relevant to you, you're excited about, they might pertain to your field, they might be something totally outside of it, might be from a kind of work context or from life, spirituality, wherever. And so my goal is for people to get a pretty broad range of what I think of as raw material, that is writing that has been done about values, about ethics, right, about how we should behave in certain situations wisdom and advice, right? Encouragement, right? <laughs> right? All those kinds of things. And the need is to go wide because you don't want to make every piece of information that you have precious right away, right? You need a wide range of perspectives in order to help you understand what resonates with your values and your beliefs particularly. But then like when you are making decisions about what to include in your own manifesto, you need to be choosy because essentially there's so much to absorb, right? If you take it all in, you haven't, you haven't given yourself a really useful tool to work with, right? It's like too much is still too much, you know? Right? Yeah, totally. So you don't need to be maximalist on the, uh, on the manifesto side. Is there a perfect side, a perfect number of statements in a manifesto? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I equally love Bruce Mao's, you know, Bruce Mao had the wonderful manifesto for growth, which has like 43, right? Or 42 or something like that. That's a lot, right? And, you know, like my favorite manifesto, which is the rules for the art department, the Sacred Heart College Art Department by Karita Kent. That's like, I, I love that one that has 10, right? 10 pieces 
I had one in the examples that I use. There's, you know, I think I use 10 different examples from different places. I had one person who did the exercise and only cut out one statement and put it in the center of the page and was like, this one statement can kind of do everything for me. It can create, I can boil it down, you know. I feel like somewhere in between one and 43 is a good number. (laughs) So I know from reading your book that you have your own manifesto and you share a line from it that says, everything is more complicated than you can possibly understand. Mm-hmm. I personally find so much beauty and comfort in this statement. So share with us how that came to be included in your manifesto and what it means to you and how it helps you. Yeah. And I think this one is a, this was a very hard one statement, right? For me, I think that this is the kind of statement that it's easy to read, but hard to live, Right. Where if you are a creative person who's driven and interested in lots of different things, often it also comes with a desire to kind of control the world in certain ways and to understand as much as you possibly can about people and about processes and about things. And I I think when I finally really accepted the fact that everything that's happening around me, every person, every process, every, like everything is just more complicated than I'm going to be able to understand and therefore control. Like I'm much better at navigating my world (laughs) for that. I mean, it works for both situations in which stuff happens and you have to deal with it. It's negative stuff and you're not happy about it. And I can look at that and be like, okay, this is just, it was just bigger than I could grok, right? And I made a mistake and I'm going to have to make up for it. And, you know, but it also is like great for when, you know, for when I'm winning on something, I can say like, yeah, this feels great. And also I should make sure that like the great feeling that I'm having is not translating into not a great feeling for other people, right? (laughs) You know, or like, what are the ramifications of what I'm trying to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have this tendency to take everything personally, both when we're winning (laughs) and when we're losing. Yeah, You know, this thing is, I think this is particularly true for women, but, you know, I experienced this form of rejection. It's all about me. Right. And it's never all about you. It's more complicated than you can possibly understand. And that (laughs) idea, though I didn't word it that way, but that idea has also been super helpful for me in my sort of adult life 2.0. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I want (laughs) to, I love a good Venn diagram. And so final question, I want to end by talking about the sort of intersection between self-awareness and conviction. So Because on some level, they feel a little opposed, but they, you know, they play together. And so I I was thinking about one's manifesto being at the intersection in a Venn diagram between conviction and self-awareness, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's right, but maybe talk about this notion of self-awareness and why it's so powerful, like knowing oneself. Mm, Yeah, I think... So one of the folks that I have worked with at Stanford, Paul Sappho, who's a futurist, he has a statement that he's fairly well known for, which is this idea of like predictions of the future should be strong statements, lightly held. And I I love that. I just, there's something about that that just really appeals to me. And I feel like the intersection of self-awareness and conviction is just that. It's strong statements, lightly held. Right. So this idea of like pursuing with passion the things that you believe in, the convictions that you have, and yet holding them lightly in a way that acknowledges everything is more complicated than you can possibly understand. (laughs) Right. Um, That allows in this sense of like you are a part of the equation. You as a person, your thoughts, your feelings, your interactions with other people are a part of what's happening. In fact, it's kind of all that's happening. Right. So like another part of my manifesto is just like it's all people. 
it's like turtles all the way down, right? It's like people all the way down. <laughs> like everything we're trying to do in this world is almost all about people, right? <laughs> and so really holding lightly this sense of like, I believe this and I'm going after it and I'm, you know, these are my values, but like really understanding that like you are a part of that equation really helps you to keep those convictions from creating, creating, from ossifying, right? From becoming static or stiff, from becoming something that then blocks what you're doing or blocks what other people are trying to do, right? Like you want your convictions to be something that helps you move, that helps you move forward, right? And you don't want them to be something that stop you, that like make you stuck, basically. And I would add too, you don't want your convictions to be something that that obstructs your ability to connect with other people. Bingo. Yeah, that's a much better way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a little different than what you were saying, but I think both are true. Charlotte, thank you so much for showing up here today and having this wonderful conversation with me about your book, which I will link to in the show notes. Highly recommend. And actually, I am going to... Somewhere between Christmas and New Year's, I'm going to do this exercise. Oh, exciting. And I do plan to record a monologue episode at some point next year about my manifesto and the process of doing it. So I'll keep you posted about that. Thrilled. I cannot wait to see it. I think that's going to be amazing. That is going to be amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. Everyone.